This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about you, your rights, and your questions about the law. I'm Greg Mayer, filling in today for your regular host, Liz Gill, and I'm joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we'll talk about the First Amendment, the law best known for giving us our right to free speech. If you have a question about the First Amendment and your right to free speech, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after the news. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you, your rights, and your questions about the law. I'm Greg Mayer, filling in today for your regular host, Liz Gill, and I'm joined today by Professor Richard Gershon at the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're going to talk about the First Amendment, the law best known for giving us our right to free speech. We'll talk about what the law means, when it applies, what speech is protected, and answer your questions about your right to free speech. If you have a question, call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 672 7464 You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Greg. And it's uh, I think this will be a fun show and uh, really happy that we're talking about First Amendment today. This is a big topic with a lot of moving parts. <laughs> and I think a, a good place for us to start is when we say free speech, what is it that we mean about what's, what is the speech that we're talking about? It's a great question, Greg. And I actually think we should look at it more in terms of expression uh, you know, in addition to speech. So uh, sometimes the easiest way to define what is protected speech is by looking at what's, what's not protected. Uh, for example, uh, the, the uh, Supreme Court has held that nudity, simply for nudity's sake, uh, someone trying to say, hey, the body is wholesome and I should be allowed to, to be in public in, in, in the nude, is not protected free speech. Uh, it, it's not a uh, protected form of uh, uh, expressive activity either uh, by itself. Now, nudity and dance or as part of a form of art could, in fact, be. Uh, protected free free expression. So, uh, you know, a lot of times we have to look at the, at the facts surrounding the the speech or the activity to decide whether they are in fact protected. Things that are clearly not protected would be things that are obscene or incite violence uh, or not uh, protected. Uh, commercial free speech is protected, but to a lesser extent. So, you know, certain things like, uh, you know, I can I can lie. 
and the government can't prevent me from doing that if I'm doing it in a non-commercial setting. But certainly I could be prevented from uh, misleading or lying in a commercial setting in a different way. So, you know, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting questions that uh, have a lot of nuance. And I think we'll have a lot of good uh, questions from callers today. Yeah, speech is more than just talking out loud. Uh, speech is it's, it's writing. It's, it's art. It's uh, things you put in your yard. It's billboards. It's, it's a lot of things. And in today's news, Professor, the, the big thing is, is the silent protest speech, uh, uh, the NFL players uh, and the national anthem. Uh, and th- this has driven a lot of controversy uh, recently with the players kneeling uh, during the national anthem. And a question I get asked a lot is, do these players have a First Amendment right to kneel during the national anthem? How would you respond to that? Well, Greg, they absolutely have a First Amendment right that protects them from government interference with their kneeling. So neither the uh, federal government, I mean, because the First Amendment says Congress shall uh, make no law. Uh, abridging the right to free speech. And, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but it, it really does just prevent Congress from making laws to uh, stop freedom of expression. Similarly, the 14th Amendment uh, Due Process Clause has been interpreted to prevent states from preventing freedom of expression the same way. So, you know, there's no government interference that can stop them from, from kneeling. The question really comes then, this is a private employment context as well. So, uh, you know, we, we look at their player contracts, and really, I, clearly, the, the, the owners seem to be supportive of the protest, as we've seen, and the other players do. So, it, you know, it doesn't appear that uh, they would be fired for that, that protest. The question is, can my employer fire me uh, for engaging in a protest at work? And, uh, and the answer is yes, under certain circumstances, they could. Um, you know, the other thing to look at would be the league itself. Uh, Article 46 of the league uh, regulations uh, says the commissioner can punish players for conduct detrimental to the integrity or public confidence in the game. Well, you know, that's, it's hard to argue that, that uh, kneeling down to the national anthem does that. I think those, uh, that provision is really more for people, uh, players caught gambling on games or, or caught in some type of uh, you know, uh, domestic violence situation, things like that. So, um, you know, it really is we have to look at their contracts. We have to look at their collective bargaining it's it's interesting when fans uh, say the fi- players should be fired. That's really uh, truly uh, between them and their employers, and, and that would have to be done on a contractual basis. This morning we are talking about the First Amendment. If you have a question, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send us an email to legalterms at Online. Dot org. And, Professor, you, you were just getting into an important distinction between whether it's the government that's telling you uh, that you can't have this, you can't kneel during the, the national anthem versus a private employer. And if I understood you correctly, uh, assuming there was nothing else in the contract with the NFL players, then it's well within the NFL League's right to tell players they have to stand during the national anthem. Is that correct? Well, it could be. Now, there is there is uh, some question about whether the Civil Rights Act, um, which is a uh, le- congressional legislation, and that's 42 U.S.C. 2000E-2A, uh, w- which talks about employer practices. And, um, you know, so one thing I want people to think about is not the con- there's more than just the Constitution at play here in, in these types of employment situations. 
Um, the provision says that it's unlawful uh, employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or discharge any individual otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individuals, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. You know, and so it, it would depend on what the protest is about. Now, if my employer says, I want you to say the Pledge of Allegiance in, the, in, uh, in order to uh, stay in my employment, uh, it would be a question of whether, uh, you know, I am not, a, uh, not from this country. My national origin may affect that. So uh, there might be implications under the Civil Rights Act uh, that would prevent my employer from uh, discriminating against me for, for failure to do so. But if it's in my contract, typically uh, my employer can ask me to do it. When we come back from break, Dan from Tupelo will take your call and we'll continue our discussion about free speech in the First Amendment. If you have a question about the laws concerning your free speech rights, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as are our local shows. I'm Greg Mayer, filling in today for your regular host, Liz Gill, and I'm here this morning with Professor Richard Gershon at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and we've been talking about the First Amendment, the law best known for giving us our right to free speech. And right before the break... We discussed uh, the difference between government enforcement uh, versus whether a private employer uh, could and, and require its employees to stand during the national anthem. On the phone, we have Dan from Tupelo who has a question. Dan, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'd like to, the professor to pontificate on U.S. versus Alvarez. Um, I think, just to, if I recall, Justice Breyer wrote the majority opinion, and uh, I'd like him to go through some of the elements of that, please. All right. Well, um, now, U.S. versus Alvarez, are you talking about the gerrymandering case? Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I mean, this is a case that actually uh, is – going to be heard fairly soon, and it could change the way that uh, state legislatures draw district lines and uh, you know, could change modern-day politics. And the question really is, is uh, right now uh, district lines are drawn by 
the party in power in most states. And so the question is, because the party in power can then uh, continue its power, get a stronghold on its power, uh, by gerrymandering, by, by changing the district lines in such a way that they pretty much ensure that they can be victorious, does that violate uh, the Constitution? Does that uh, violate uh, equal protection clause? Uh, and so uh, the Supreme Court will be hearing uh, uh, about that case. And it certainly does affect, you know, voters' rights in some ways. It's up to the Supreme Court to decide whether those gerrymandering, gerrymandering uh, rules that allow the uh, party in power uh, should be continued. I hope that answered your question. Uh, actually, it was the wrong case. Uh, the one I'm referring to uh, concerns stolen valor, and I oh, think okay. Justice Breyer said that lying was a form of uh, protected free speech. Right, uh, and that – sorry about that. Yeah, the stolen valor cases, there, there were – uh, there was legislation saying that it was uh, criminal behavior to engage in lying about one's military service. And the case that you're talking about uh, said that, that, no, that's protected free speech, even though it's a lie, as long as it's not done to make money. So the, uh, the person in that case had not uh, lied in order to uh, make money or to uh, get any financial benefit, but was just lying about uh, his military service to puff himself up. And uh, you're right. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, held that that is protected free speech. So that li- even lying is protected free speech in, in certain contexts. And, and, you know, if it's not done for commercial reasons, uh, it is protected. Well, um, I think he used his purported military service to gain election to some position in California. So uh, I wonder if he did not benefit from his from his false statements. I think the real question there is really beyond that particular person was the the, uh, stolen valor statutes themselves, whether you can criminalize, whether a state government can criminalize uh, someone's uh, you know, just talking about whatever there is they're doing, even if it's not true, and and the answer the Supreme Court said was no. Now I don't disagree with you. I kind of I kind of wonder why they didn't see that as a benefit that he used it to to get elected, uh, and 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 they were really focusing much more on the commercial benefit. He did not receive any direct commercial benefit. So if I if I lied to uh, to get uh, some type of uh, uh, you know compensation or payment for my military service when I didn't have it, that would be a different, a different issue. So I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with your concern about, uh, you know, what benefit it takes, but the idea behind the, the stolen valor statutes is that to prevent someone from even talking about their military service, which is not true. Uh, the Supreme court said we can't, states can't prevent somebody from doing that. Dan, thank you very much for your call. And, and Professor, that's an, it's an interesting distinction, and, and you use the phrase non-commercial and commercial uh, speech. Commercial speech is speech essentially you're, you're used to make money. Would you think that's a fair assessment? That's correct. And, so, you know, uh, for, for example, Greg, you and I can advertise as lawyers. Uh, there was a case, uh, Bates, that said that you know, lawyers could not be prohibited from advertising. I know uh, you know, back in the day, lawyers could not advertise. The state bar would prohibit them. But the Supreme Court said lawyers have a right to commercial free speech, and that's why you see advertising 
my lawyers, but it can't, it has to be truthful. So if I, I, you know, I can't, I can't say to, and I can't do anything misleading either. If I, if I've never tried a case, I can't put in my ads that I've never lost a case because that would be misleading. It might be even true, but it'd be misleading, but I certainly can't lie in my ads. I can't say I, I am, uh, you know, somebody who, uh, um, has, uh, you know, great experience, went to Harvard Law School, uh, and, had, had, you know, worked for firms that I didn't work for, that speech is not protected. Because the courts have sort of carved out this area that they protect consumers. Is, is that a fair way to put it? It is. Yeah. And, and so, you know, once I, once I enter into commerce and use my speech for commerce, so, you know, if I were using, if I were lying about my military service as a lawyer trying to uh, attract clients, certainly I could be prohibited from doing that uh, because commercial free speech is protected at a lower level generally than free speech. So, you know, the, the caller, when Dan was calling about uh, the stolen valor statutes, that would be an attempt by a state to restrict someone's free speech. And we may all agree that people shouldn't, shouldn't lie about their military service. That, that's, you know, offensive to most of us. But nonetheless, that is protected free speech uh, that can't be prohibited by the state. This morning, we are talking about the First Amendment. If you have a question, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Uh, professor, at the top of the hour, when we first started talking about what speech and, and what's protected, you, you noted, and I think it would be worth, uh, worthwhile for us just to talk in a little bit more detail about certain areas of speech that aren't protected, that you can't just say some things uh, and, and have a First Amendment right to do it. Uh, for instance, hate speech. Could you tell us a little bit about what hate speech is and, and why that's not protected? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, Greg, because it's a, it's, a, it's a nuanced question because hate speech is nonetheless speech. And so really, uh, for example, uh, there was a case uh, where uh, some, some uh, white uh, teenagers burned a cross on the lawn of a black family. Uh, and the Supreme Court, there was a state, you know, they were, those, uh, they were arrested based on the, the, the hate speech, saying this was hate speech. And um, the Supreme Court actually said you can't punish speech itself, the hate speech itself. Uh, it was the act, the act of burning the cross uh, that would be punishable, the act of being on someone else's property that would be punishable. And you can enhance uh, criminal sanctions based on the fact that they're, they're you know, hate, hate crimes. So, you know, if it's clear that the reason that someone was attacked was because of their race or their uh, or uh, their uh, religious beliefs, that would be a hate, a hate crime, and we could use the speech that uh, that uh, indicated that that was a hate crime. Because you know, if they if they if somebody was saying uh, offensive uh, things about the religion or about the the person because of their race, in addition to the act, that would be a hate crime. But the Supreme Court has regularly said we can't really punish itself hate speech. Now we we certainly want to discourage it. Uh, but we can't punish it because that is a form of free speech. And it, it, I think probably one of the more uh, uh, controversial uh, uh, symbolic acts like that is burning the American flag. Uh, but that, the court has held, is protected speech as well. Yes, they have. There was a case, Texas versus Johnson, uh, that, uh, and it was a, about a flag-burning 
at uh, the Republican uh, convention back in the 1980s. And uh, someone burned a flag, uh, and, as, and the Supreme Court said that is, that is expressive. That's an expressive action, which has protected uh, free speech. So, yes, burning the flag in that context would be protected. Now, if I go on somebody else's property and burn a flag, you know, I would be trespassing. Uh, if, if there are no burn ordinances, the places that you're not allowed to burn anything, and I burn the flag, I could be arrested for that burning, but the, the, the expression of burning the flag itself w- was protected free speech. Let's go to the phones. We've got Gary from Greenville. Gary, good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, my question is this. Uh, I'm having a private conversation, and uh, some people are overhearing me without my permission and take some things I say out of context. Can they... Uh, Later on, come back and and uh, and and use my conversation, uh, which I consider out of context against me. Well, that's that's a great question, and again, you know, some of that depends on uh, how you know what your expectation of privacy was. And in this day and age, uh, I think we can assume that privacy is really something that we we can't expect as much anymore. As, you know, because if you're talking on a cell phone or you're uh, using uh, social media. Uh, or even if you're having a conversation in a public place, uh, we probably should as- expect that our conversations are uh, less private than, than we want them to be. Um, now, on the other hand, if somebody taps into your phone illegally or they, you know, they, they uh, uh, are uh, eavesdropping on a conversation by trespassing, uh, then you may have more rights. But uh, so it starts with, what, you know, what, where were you when that happened in terms of th- that conversation? Um, if they heard it and it was in a public place, then, you know, you can expect that they could use it as long as they don't defame you, as long as they don't lie about you in a way that uh, hurts your reputation, uh, then, uh, again, they have, uh, rights to, uh, your, your right to privacy has certain limits. Okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, Professor, one area you see more often than not, it's not so much conversations between two people, but maybe emails that you fire off in, in a moment of anger that come back to haunt you <laughs> down the road. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I, it's one of the things that we talk about uh, to our students here is, you know, hey, you know, don't think about what you put on social media, because it, even if you take it down, all it, all it has to take is somebody takes a screenshot of it at some point and it's there forever. And uh, and so we, we all need to think about our privacy uh, very carefully. All right, let's go back to the phone lines. We have Jim from Gulfport. Jim, good morning. Hey, good morning, Jim. It's a very, very uh, hot and hot topic. Uh, if you would, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a veteran also, I really believe in the Constitution and American values. But I have a problem with what's had, what has happened to uh, the First Amendment when it comes to freedom of speech, we have we have over uh, overused it in some ways. So, really, in, in reading it, what exactly does it mean when it says freedom of speech? How does it really read and break down? Well, you know, Jim, it's a great question, and thank you for your service, by the way. We appreciate that. You know, I, speech, the Supreme Court has said, even speech that is offensive to, to many people, is protected. That was really the the, the flag burning, for example, uh, is offensive to many people. 
and yet it is a form of free expression that is protected uh, as political free speech. So, if you know the 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 thing that we want to do in this country is create a, 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 a free market of conversation, a free market of ideas, and you don't do that by preventing some ideas from getting to the table, even if those ideas may be offensive. Now, what we can prevent, we can prevent obscenity uh, and and things that you know uh, are uh, considered uh, egregious in that way. We can prevent things that are a credible threat uh, as well. Uh, so, you know, there are certain there are certain limitations, but generally speaking, the government uh, has to have a compelling reason to prevent somebody from exercising their right to free speech. And, and part of that is because we don't want people to be afraid to criticize the government. We don't want people to be afraid to express political opinions that are different from the majority, uh, because that really would hurt our democracy rather than help it. Yeah, Jim's question really gets into the complexity of the First Amendment. When we come back from break, we'll talk more about the First Amendment and your right to free speech. Give us a call if you have any questions or comments. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Greg Mayer, filling in today for Liz Gill, and I'm joined today by Professor Richard Gershon, our legal expert at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're talking about the First Amendment. To join in on our conversation, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to Legal terms at mpbonline.org. Uh, Professor, before the break, you had touched on social media and websites and uh, sort of caution that you've given to students. And the Internet and social media are really charting new ground in, in First Amendment and, and, and getting our – and what we can put out there. Even yeah. recently that we have a right to uh, free speech on social media – which is kind of interesting because it is, a, you know, they are privately run platforms for the most most mm-hmm. part. But, uh, for example, there was a case in, out of North Carolina. The Supreme Court ruled uh, that uh, Facebook could not ban uh, someone who was a convicted sex offender from, from using social media. 
uh, in, a, in a, a 2017 case. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is a free speech right uh, to use social media. It's a, you know, a, a great base for conversation. Again, people need to use it cautiously and thoughtfully, in my opinion. But um, on the other hand, there are rules that Facebook has and Twitter has uh, that we all have to follow or they can take our posts down. Professor, if, if I get on a site like Facebook, do I have a, a right to post whatever I want to post on there? Well, no, no you don't. And, and now you, you, have a, you start off with a presumption that you, what you have to say is free speech. And, and yet, um, if you were to, for example, put on uh, Facebook, let's all kill the president, uh, that could be seen as a credible threat. But even, even if it's not, Facebook would take that down. Uh, they've been pretty clear that threats against public officials on uh, on Facebook, they won't accept, and they'll take those down. Um, threats against individuals, uh, less clear what Facebook does. But, uh, you know, clearly, you know, those things are protected. Threats are protected unless they're credible threats, unless there's some reason why someone uh, would expect that you're going to carry out that violent act. Inciting violence is not uh, protected speech on, on Facebook or on Twitter or in general. And things that are obscene, you know, if, you, if someone just posts a, uh, a picture of, of themselves uh, in, a, in a way that's obscene, uh, you know, we could all use our imaginations to get there. Those could be considered not protected as well. And, and as you pointed out, uh, companies like Facebook and, and Twitter adopt their own rules uh, and they could delete post or take it off even if they're not credible threats or if, if against some other policy that might not rise to a constitutional level, but the company itself just doesn't want to see it on its website. That's right. I mean, they are commercial enterprises. All right, let's get back to the phones. We have Sue from Beaumont. Sue, good morning. Hi. <clears throat> I heard a snippet of a show on national public broadcasting about should the Constitution be revised. I mean, it's, it's, according to this conversa- conversation I was hearing that it should be revised in total because there are so many amendments and uh, the Constitution is an old document and perhaps it's, it's served its purpose and we need to revise the entire Constitution. What do you think about that? Well, so that's a great question, and uh, you know there there are some discussions every every once in a while about revising the Constitution. It is an old document; it's a document you know clearly more than two hundred years old. Things have changed uh, since it was uh, formulated, and uh, it's certainly not a perfect document. Um, so you know some consideration. Of course, it has been amended from time to time as well, as we know. Uh, and so, uh, for example, um, you know, just the idea that uh, that it, when the Constitution was first enacted, slavery was an institution that was actually recognized by the Constitution. The 13th Amendment ended that. Uh, women were not allowed to vote on the, the original Constitution. Uh, clearly, you know, then that has been amended. So, you know, the, the Constitution is a document that uh, could be amended, could be totally reconsidered. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, maybe it's not bad for society to kind of look at our, our documents and say, okay, where, where is it working? Where is it not working? That's a great question, Sue. Uh, let's get back uh, to Michael, who I think we're going to be able to got a connection with him now. Michael, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Just I fine. apologize for that earlier. <laughs> That's fine. What's your question? So uh, my question is, is uh, with, with the climate that's out there now and everyone, you know, expressing political uh, opinions and, 
and protesting. Uh, and you say you have a, a speaker on a campus who's giving a speech, and then there's a, a counter-protest who shouts him down or shouts that person down. Is that considered blocking free speech or, or not? That's a great question, but that's not government action. And so we are, you know, individuals within, a, a, you know, a, a certain uh, realm. You can't use violence to block that person. But our free speech rights allow us to protest, protest. Now, you know, the thing is, if, if I'm in a if I'm in a setting, let's say that uh, that speaker uh, has uh, is part of an organization that has rented the space and has been gotten permission to be in that space. And I start to uh, uh, disrupt that speech. I can't I can uh, be removed from that setting. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are there are restrictions on time and place that that the state or the federal government can impose. So for if I want to do a protest, a lot of times a public protest, I'm going to have to get uh, some permission. I'm going to have to go to uh, the local government and, and secure the space that I'm going to use. If they're going to block streets, I need to get permission for that. So, you know, there are some restrictions that can be placed on that. And, and you know, if I if someone has got a, a you know, valid uh, permission to uh, give a speech, then someone else who's being too disruptive of that speech can can be removed. And, and one of the things that makes the First Amendment uh, wonderful is that, and as you pointed out, Professor, the content of the speech uh, can't be uh, can't be chosen or restricted by the government. If it lets one side of the debate have a, a, a forum, it has to let the other side of that debate have the forum. That's, Greg, that's exactly right. I mean, that's the whole point. If we want a free exchange of ideas, I mean, the idea was ideas that are really offensive that people find very bothersome will soon die in the market because people, you know, people won't buy into them. Um, you know, I think we see with, uh, for example, we don't uh, stop people from expressing uh, their desire for white supremacy uh, because what typically will happen is the numbers of people who oppose that and find that offensive will way outweigh those who are in favor of it. Um, so we don't, we don't, uh, you don't stop uh, an idea by you know preventing it. You allow it to uh, be expressed, and then you allow uh, people to to make arguments against it. That's that's a good exchange of ideas. That's a great question, Michael. Let's go back to the phones. We have Bobby from Hattiesburg. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning. How you doing? Just fine. What's your question? My question, sir, is, uh, it may already been asked, but if the NFL franchises have a right to terminate the players for their protesting uh, under the idea that uh, these players are running their customers off, uh, customers are changing the channel, they're leaving the stadiums, or either they're not even showing up at the stadium, uh, my employer would not allow me to run its customers off, and that's that's the question I have. Well, it's a, it's a it's a fair question, and uh, you know it is because it it does involve the uh, the right of the private owners to to deal with employment, and the, you know one thing that has happened in the NFL is they have contracts, they have collective bargaining, uh, they have a league and league rules that they have to follow. But you know, so far the owners are supportive of the players. And that is their right. Uh, the commissioner, as we mentioned before, under Article 46, can punish players for conduct detrimental to the integrity or public confidence in the game. And, and I don't think, uh, for the most part, it would, it would be hard to make an argument that this is. Now, the numbers in terms of uh, people being run off, I think a lot of people 
uh, have turned away from football because of concussion issues and injury issues um, as well. So it would be hard to know, you know, what, what is driving people away. I know my wife works for a magazine um, called, uh, and I hope I can say this on the air, Garden and Gun. Uh, she is one of, uh, the copy chief for that, that magazine. And they published uh, an editorial um, in favor of taking down the Confederate flag in South Carolina, the, the magazine's out of Charleston. Now, I know that the editor got lots of letters from people saying that they were going to cancel their subscriptions because uh, of that letter, but they also found that more people actually subscribed uh, in, in, in response, favorable response to that. So I think there are a lot of people, and I would include myself, who support the players' rights to kneel down. And I, I, I watch my NFL teams every Sunday. My Falcons, unfortunately, lost this weekend. So I'm not giving up on, on football. And Bobby's question really gets at the difference between whether it's the government saying you can do something or whether it's a, a, a private employer or the marketplace that says you should or shouldn't do something. It really gives rise to that phrase, marketplace of ideas. It does. And, and you know, it's why, it's why uh, organizations uh, will uh, boycott various companies. So, yeah, it's, ter- it's the fans' right to, to boycott the NFL if they don't like the, the, the decision by the players to kneel. That's the fans' rights to do that too. There's no, you know, there's no stopping people from doing that. And if you know, if enough fans were to boycott, I, I imagine the NFL would rethink maybe its position. Uh, yeah, there are boycotts, for example, uh, uh, against uh, certain uh, department stores based on their their stand in favor of LGBTQ rights. Um, but uh, you know, so you know, there, companies, organizations can take positions. That's the marketplace. You're exactly right, Greg. When we come back from the break, we will continue our discussion on the First Amendment. There's still time for you to join our conversation. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org at In Legal Terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as are all of our local shows. I'm Greg Mayer, filling in today for your regular host, Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today, we're talking about the First Amendment. And, Professor, we've talked about various aspects of the First Amendment, and before the break... 
and before some of the calls, we were talking about uh, social media and websites. And uh, in the, the current era, uh, government websites have now taken on a new role, both in communicating to the public and allowing the public to communicate back to the uh, to its government officials. Do I have a right to post whatever I want to on a government website? Great question, Greg. Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, up to a point. Again, if you make a credible threat against uh, that government uh, official, whoever it might be, or against that government entity, uh, then that would not be protected free speech. Um, if you did something obscene uh, on that site, that would not be protected free speech. Um, and, you know, there probably are uh, certain posting rules and things like that. A lot of times uh, those things are monitored to make sure that they catch some of that before it gets posted. But um, generally speaking, if the, if the government site is there, you have a right to criticize it. You have a right to make comments about it uh, if they open it up for comments. Well, let's get back to the phone. We have uh, Susan from Memphis. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. Uh, my question is, if a, if a group wants to exercise their, free, their First Amendment right and they want to have a protest, and they go to City Hall and they ask for a permit to protest something like, I don't know, uh, a voter issue, something that's coming up on a ballot. And the City Hall says, no, you can't have your your protest here in the town square. What is the uh, group's legal resource? Uh, I'm sorry, what's their legal recourse if the governmental entity refuses to issue them a permit? That's a great question, um, and it really it depends, you know, because if if the if the city says, hey, look, we're just not set up, you know, if it's a town that's not set up to handle large protests, uh, they may if they deny everyone's uh, 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 request to uh, you know have a time and place to, to protest, you know, within the square, because it does cost the city money to to put police protection there to block streets if that's necessary, so there might be legitimate reasons why. They could turn down, uh, you know, a group or any group for protesting. But if they turn down just a specific group, if they grant permission, uh, usually uh, within, you know, uh, with certain requirements, and then yet turn down a particular group because of its position, then I think that would be a problem because then they are uh, addressing content as opposed to time and place. The recourse of the group. Well, then at that case, I would go, there are organizations that, uh, do protect uh, civil liberties. One, for example, the ACLU would be a good place to start to find out uh, if uh, if there are uh, if if in fact the content of speech is being prohibited. So if it's just something that the city wants a certain position heard but not another position, and they've granted permission to other groups to to uh, protest or to demonstrate or to hold up signs in favor of legislation or against it, but they're denying this group because of its position or political stand then that's problematic, and I would talk to a, a, either a lawyer or uh, a public service, a public interest group like the ACLU. Thank you, Susan, for that call. Let's go uh, to the phones, and I think we have William from Ocean Springs. William, good morning. Good morning. What's your question? I've got a question. I've seen several things where uh, schools have threatened uh, their children and all that and them not uh, either standing for the pledge or taking a kneel for it and all that. And in 43, the uh, West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, they ruled that um, that the schools or governments could not force people 
to actually stand on it. I'm just wondering what y'all's opinion is on that and the way that's playing out today. You're absolutely right. The 1943 case is a long-standing decision that says that children can't be forced in school to uh, recite the Pledge of Allegiance. In that case, it was a, a, a someone who was a Jehovah's Witness, and it was a religious objection. But uh, that's a long-standing case. So there are students now who are being uh, kicked off of football teams, high school football teams, for failure to uh, stand for the national anthem. And you know, the the question is whether uh, that is uh, you know a violation of their free speech rights. Um, you know, because sports teams are a little bit different than the, the typical educational uh, process and the educational, uh, you know, activities of students. You know, I, there may be reasons why uh, students could be kicked off a sports team, but I, I'm concerned about that too. I do think that that probably uh, flies in the face of the 1943 uh, Supreme Court decision uh, about the West Virginia Board of Education. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and if, if those students challenge uh, they're being kicked off the team. Again, though, you know, the students may have signed something to be on the team. They may have signed an agreement to follow certain rules. So we have to we have to look at those, too, because you can waive your rights. I mean, you can if you're in involuntarily in an organization and say, hey, yeah, you know, we all agree to comply with certain rules, even though we, we don't have to. But if we want to participate in this this event, we we want we will agree to do things a certain way. You know, that's 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 when you basically say, OK, I want to do this bad enough that I will waive my my rights to uh, to argue against uh, being prevented from doing that. It really gets into that, that gray area of when are you being compelled to or when are you waiving it because you want to do it? Um, and, and, Professor, I'd be curious on your thoughts. Do you think that as part of sort of interscholastic sports, a, a school district, a public school district could say in order to participate, everybody has to stand for the national anthem? I think they may be able to. I wonder, though, again, if that's compelling the same way. To me, the national anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance are hard to separate and I'm not sure how you would make that argument in the face of that 1943 West, uh, case out of the Supreme Court dealing with West Virginia. Um, you know, and that's been long held. I know my, my daughter goes to the high school here, and she says that when they do the pledge, not, not everybody stands, and they don't have to, and nobody says anything to them. Um, you know, I, really, uh, I think that uh, it's going to be an interesting case. Somebody will challenge it at some point. And it extends beyond the, the schoolhouse. Uh, if you've ever been to a, a public meeting uh, just about anywhere in our state, generally those meetings, they start with a, uh, a Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, could the, uh, if it was, say, a local city council, could the, the city council kick somebody out if, if that person refused to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance? I think not. I, mean, I think, you know, they uh, – um, they can do that. They, they can have the Pledge of Allegiance. People who want to stand can stand. Those who don't are certainly allowed under their First Amendment rights as an expression of silence uh, not to recite the pledge. So I, I think that would be inappropriate for the government to take that action because that would be a government actor in that case. And Professor, we, we're down to our last 30 seconds, and there's a, a whole lot about the First Amendment we, we didn't get a chance to talk about. What would you like to uh, wrap up with? Well, you're right, Greg. I mean, I think it's just one thing that we ought to do in this country is be think more civilly towards each other and have, let's have discussions. We, we've become more like competing football fans, uh, you know, given the topic today, uh, than we have, they are about uh, people who really want to come to uh, problem solving together and working out problems. And we do that by listening to each other, 
not by shutting each other down. And that'll wrap us for today's In Legal Terms. To hear today's show or a previous show, visit mpbonline.org slash terms, or you can download the MPB Media app and listen on your smart device or on demand. Our board engineer was Michelle McAdoo. For Professor Richard Gershon, I'm Greg Mayer. Up next is Tuesday's Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking. Join us again next Tuesday at 10 for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.